This is KBOO Portland. Hello, good evening. Welcome to KBOO's Poetry and Everything. I'm Judith Arcana, your host. KBOO Community Radio is in Portland, Oregon, USA, and you, you could be anywhere on this planet, anywhere in the world, listening. Most of the time, we have guests who are poets, poets from nearby and far away, and every now and then, folks who are not poets, but all of us reading and talking about poetry and everything. Tonight, though, we're doing something different. We're doing a show for National Poetry Month in the USA. We generally open with me reading a bit of my work, then the guest and I read work by other poets, and then the guest reads some. Tonight, though, I'm going to read poems by many, many poets, and Patrick Bocard, who's been engineering almost all of my shows for more than two years, is going to read a set of works by other poets. We're going to swap, in fact. He'll do a set, I'll do a set, but it's all about lots of poems by lots of poets. All poetry, all the time, a celebration of the art of poetry. So now, let me tell you about him. Patrick Bocard is a longtime contributor to the culture of Portland poetry, having been a host, a sound engineer for KBOO's poetry program, Talking Earth, and a writer-creator in local journals, including the Broken Word Anthologies, The Temple, and Venetian Blind Drunk, one of the all-time great titles, among others. He was, with his co-conspirator Neil Anderson, creator of the satirical short film, The Warriors, based on the cult classic The Warriors. His chapbooks include This Economy Must Be Destroyed and Walking Home Weird. So, Patrick, you're on. Thank you for having me on. And, uh, okay, my first uh, poem that I'm reading is uh, by Lawrence Robb. Attack of the Crab Monsters. Even from the beach, I could sense it. Lack of welcome, lack of abiding life. Like something in the air, a certain lack of sound. Yesterday, there was a mountain out there. Now it's gone. And look at this radio, each tube neatly sliced in half. Blow the place up. That was my advice. But after the storm and the earthquake... After the tactic of the exploding plane and the strategy of the sinking boat, it looked like fate. And I wanted to say, don't you see? So what if you're a famous biochemist? Lost with all hands is an old story. Sure, we're on the edge of an important breakthrough. Everyone hearing voices, everyone falling into caves, and you're out wandering through the jungle in the middle of the night in your negligee. Yes, we're way out there on the edge of science while the rest of the island continues to disappear until nothing's left except this cliff in the middle of the ocean and you in your bathing suit crouched behind the scuba tanks. I'd like you to tell I'd like to tell you not to be afraid, but have lost my voice. I've not I am not used to all these legs, these claws, these feelers. It's the old story, predictable as fallout, the rearrangement of molecules, and everyone is surprised and no one understands why each man tries to kill the thing he loves when the change comes over him. So now you know what I never found the time to say. Sweetheart, put down your flamethrower. You know I've always loved you. That, that was yeah, quite a discovery when I found that when I was really young. I bet. And you can write poems about monster movies. It's possible. It's also nice that I found out the plot of that movie when I tried to, I'd already tried to see it and I'd failed. This is by Edith Sitwell. Um, Sir Beelzebub. When Sir Beelzebub called for his syllabub in the hotel in hell when, where, where Proserpine first fell... Blue as the gendarmerie were the waves of the sea, rocking and shocking the barmaid. 
Nobody comes to give him his rum, but the rim of the sky, hippopotamus glum, enhances the chances to bless with a benison. Alpha Lord Tennyson crossing the bar laid with cold vegetation from pale deputations of temperance workers, all signed in memoriam, hoping with glory to trip up the laureate's feet, moving in classical meters. Like balaclava, the lava came down from the roof, and the sea's blue wooden gendarme took them in charge while Beelzebub roared for his rum. None of them come. It's so great to think of Edith Sitwell in terms of that particular piece. Thank you. She has some serious ones that I didn't read when I was when I was younger, and I've read now, and they're really good. But oh yeah, oh yeah. But uh, my first little set is, and uh, which is going to end with this uh, piece by Wanda Coleman, is a little more lighthearted. Ode to a lost piece of hose. O sock, where art thou, dear nubs? Warmer gone missing. Alack, my tightly wound universe is thrown into chaos. A just-removed sock unravels my psyche as I grope for the actuality of its dislocation. Twast here, mere seconds ago, must be here somewhere. Tis still felt in hand, pliant, a soft blackness delicately patterned in pink, orange, and mauve threads, embroidered jewels. I should have never, for my foot, doffed it. But my big toe required a rub to relieve the crush of boot leather against the nail, and a quick clipping and filing to relieve the pressures of malls, parking lots, hallways, and the pacings of fluorescent classrooms or traversings of quads. It isn't in my desk. My notebooks are pristine, not a whit of evidence of aggressive nesting rodents. No cats. In the Jane, I give myself a pat down, sir. Search Kraken and Crevice for that escapee on the sly. I dread the anticipation. It's dropping from a sleeve, sliding from under a pant leg, or peeping from a pocket or fly. A well-zipped zipper will prevent that, at least, I think, as I triple check. Quickly, the deadline, deadline nears, and off to labor I must go, planting knowledge twixt tender ears to find that soccer go stockingless into that interminable interval, confidence frayed, barefoot with a dusty soul. I love what she's doing there. Thank you. Thank you for that choice. Thank, for, thank you for letting me do this. Oh, yeah. We're going to keep doing it. Um, all right, so here's my first set. I'm opening with a poem by Grace Paley called The Poet's Occasional Alternatives. I was going to write a poem. I made a pie instead. It took about the same amount of time. Of course, the pie was a final draft. A poem would have had some distance to go, days and weeks and much crumpled paper. The pie already had a talking, tumbling audience among small trucks and a fire engine on the kitchen floor. Everybody will like this pie. It will have apples and cranberries, dried apricots in it. Many friends will say, why in the world did you make only one? This does not happen with poems. Because of unreportable sadness, I decided to settle this morning for a responsive eatership. I do not want to wait a week, a year, a generation for the right consumer to come along. Grace Paley, the poet's occasional alternative. Next up, Camille Dungy, a poem called It Is. Not who is it, are we there yet, is anybody home, not how much for the lemon, not how much for the ivory, the leopard, the peach, not when are we leaving, not how will we leave, not do you know who she came with, how many clowns will fit in the car, the head of a pin, no one cares how many angels, no one cares what you think of the smart bomb, corruption, the mobs, your opinion on deregulation, no one's concern, the question is not who done it, the question is not what's for dinner, what's your beverage, where's the beef. The question is not who's your daddy, is not which way will the wind blow, is not where's the car, 
You washed behind your ears, right? The question is not, did you turn off the oven? Did you remember to set the alarm? What's that got to do with the price of tea in China? Did it bite you? Did you see it? What is this? What's got into you? No one's asking if you know where your children are. No one's asking if you can locate the nearest exits. In some cases, they may be behind you. No one cares whether or not you are being followed. Don't ask if it makes you look fat. The question is not, do you remember the time? Will you please tell me the time? Not, do you know the extension of the person you are calling? Not premium or regular. Not paper? Not plastic? Credit or debit? The question is not what you can do for your country. Not now? Not later? Not okay? The question is not what your country can do for you. The question is not who will save us. How are you getting by? And she includes the reported last words of Gertrude Stein, which I, too, along with this poet, have always loved. Just before she died, she was able to ask, what is the answer? She got no response. Her last words were, in that case, what is the question? <laughs> and I'm sure she had that in her head the whole time she was writing. Okay, um, in another mood entirely... This poem is um, translated. Uh, the original is in Palestinian Arabic by Mahmoud Darwish. It translated and edited by Abdullah al-Udari. We love life whenever we can. We love life whenever we can. We dance and throw up a minaret or raise palm trees for the violets growing between two martyrs. We love life whenever we can. We steal a thread from a silkworm to weave a sky and a fence for our journey. We open the garden gate for the jasmine to walk into the street as a beautiful day. We love life whenever we can. Wherever we settle, we grow fast-growing plants. Wherever we settle, we harvest a murdered man. We blow into the flute the color of far away, of far away. We draw on the dust in the passage the neighing of a horse, and we write our names in the form of stones. Lightning, brighten the night for us, brighten the night a little. We love life whenever we can. Mahmoud Darwish. Mm. And here's um, a poem by Ellen Bass, who often writes very long poems. This is only a semi-long poem in her terms. This is called Relax. Bad things are going to happen. Your tomatoes will grow a fungus and your cat will get run over. Someone will leave the bag with the ice cream melting in the car and throw your blue cashmere sweater in the dryer. Your husband will sleep with a girl your daughter's age, her breasts spilling out of her blouse. Or your wife will remember she's a lesbian and leave you for the woman next door. The other cat, the one you never really liked, will contract a disease that requires you to pry open its feverish mouth every four hours for a month. Your parents will die. No matter how many vitamins you take, how much pylades, you'll lose your keys, your hair, and your memory. If your daughter doesn't plug her heart into every live socket she passes, you'll come home to find your son has emptied your refrigerator, dragged it to the curb, and called the used appliance store for a pickup. Drug money. There's a Buddhist story of a woman chased by a tiger. When she comes to a cliff, she sees a sturdy vine and climbs halfway down. But there's also a tiger below, and two mice one white, one black, scurry out and begin to gnaw at the vine. At this point, she notices a wild strawberry growing from a crevice. She looks up, down, at the mice. Then she eats the strawberry. So here's the view, the breeze, the pulse in your throat. Your wallet will be stolen. You'll get fat. Slip on the bathroom tiles of a foreign hotel and crack your hip. You'll be lonely. Oh, taste how sweet and tart the red juice is, how the tiny seeds crunch between your teeth. Ellen Bass, she's hmm. pretty amazing. 
well, of course, I tried to choose only amazing poets and poems. And in fact, here are the biggies right now. This one's Shakespeare. He was pretty good. Um, this is just a few lines from um, Shakespeare's play, Antony and Cleopatra, in which Enobarbus describes Cleopatra. The barge she sat in, like a burnished throne, burned on the water. The poop was beaten gold, purple the sails, and so perfumed that the winds were lovesick with them. The oars were silver, which to the tune of flutes kept stroke and made the water which they beat to follow faster as amorous of their strokes. For her own person, it beggared all description. Yeah, that guy had a way with words. And a couple thousand years before that one, <laughs> Sappho wrote... Bringing out the heavy hitters. Yes, yes, wrote the stuff that, um, you know, most of it, of course, we don't have. But this is from uh, the translation uh, by Barnard. Don't ask me what to wear. I have no embroidered headband from Sardis to give you, Cleus, such as I wore, and my mother always said that in her day a purple ribbon looped in the hair was thought to be high style indeed, but we were dark. A girl whose hair is yellower than torchlight should wear no headdress but fresh flowers. If every mother would talk to her daughter that way, everything would be better in the world, I'm quite sure. I've got, I think, a couple more before Patrick's next set. Yes. Okay. Um, this is Sherman Alexie. You see what I mean, folks? We're just zipping through here. <laughs> poem, 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 poem. The occasional comment, poem, poem, poem. All right. This is called Futures, and it begins with an epigraph from Lucille Clifton. Oh, children, think about the good times. Sherman Alexie. We lived in the HUD house for 50 bucks a month. Those were the good times. Annie Green Springs wine was a dollar a bottle. My uncles always came over to eat stew and fry bread, to get drunk in the sweat lodge, to spit and piss in the fire. No one never had no job, but we could always eat commodity cheese and beef, and Mom sold her quilts for 50 bucks each to whites driving in from Spokane to buy illegal fireworks. That was the summer I found a bag full of real silver dollars and gave all my uncles, all my brothers and sisters, each one, and no one spent any. No one. I love that. <laughs> okay, a um, couple more. Here is Lucille Clifton. Of course, I put this one next. Being discussed just as Sherman Alexie talked about her, Toy Derricott has written this poem called Watching a Roach Give Birth on YouTube, I Think of Lucille Clifton Meeting God. And her epigraph is, Come celebrate with me. This is Clifton, the epigraph. Come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. Here's the part I'm going to read. Lucille even after breast cancer, even after her kidneys failed and the twice-weekly dialysis, didn't get really mad at God until her youngest girl, Frederica, died of a brain tumor at 35. Then she didn't speak to God for years. Not until her granddaughter Bailey was born did she give thanks again, saying part of her lost daughter had returned. How she loved and praised it all. Toward the end, she said she wasn't angry at God anymore, but that, when she got to heaven, she had some very tough questions for him. Once, Lucille visited a grade school in Maryland, where, walking through the library, she noticed a distinct lack of color on the shelves. Where are the books with black children in them, she asked. The assured librarian had a swift reply. We don't have any black children in this school, so we don't need those books, she said. Well, you don't have any bunnies in this school either, but you seem to have plenty of books about bunnies. Poor God, I thought, who, having made her shining brain our brilliant morning star, must have seen her coming. <laughs> Toy Derricott writing about Lucille Clifton. And... One more before Patrick's next shot. Um, 
This is by Lucille Clifton. Of course, I had to do that. Um, One of my faves called Water Sign Woman. The woman who feels everything sits in her new house, waiting for someone to come who knows how to carry water without spilling, who knows why the desert is sprinkled with salt, why tomorrow is such a long and ominous word. They say to the feel-things woman that little she dreams is possible, that there is only so much joy to go around, only so much water. There are no questions for this, no arguments. She has to forget to remember the edge of the sea, they say, to forget how to swim to the edge. She has to forget how to feel. The woman who feels everything sits in her new house, retaining the secret the desert knew when it walked up from the ocean. The desert, so beautiful in her eyes. Water will come again if you can wait for it. She feels what the desert feels. She waits. Okay, Patrick's next round. All right, so my first poem in this section is by Frank Beidart. Uh, f- originally, I was going to read a eight-page poem by Frank Beidart, but I'm going to read a one-page poem that is the one poem that everyone sees in an anthology because it's the one of the few one-page poems that he wrote. One of these days, I will read... The War of Vaslav Nijinsky and get cut off 15 minutes into it at an open mic. Self-Portrait, 1969. He's still young, 30, but looks younger. Or does he? In the eyes and cheeks, tonight, turning in the mirror, he saw his mother, puffy, angry, bewildered. Many nights now, when he stares there, he gets angry. Something unfulfilled there, something dead to what he once thought he could surely be. Now, just a glamour of habits. Once, instead, he thought insight would remake him. He'd reach, what? The thrill, the exhilaration, unraveling disaster that seemed to teach necessary knowledge became just jargon. Sick of being decent, He craves another crash. What reaches him except disaster? Hmm. He could do a lot in just one page. (laughs) I might add that 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 might have more words than most of his one page. He likes spreading his words all around the page, which is something else I kind of was attracted to when I first stumbled upon his work. Uh, This is by another poet who uh, I first experienced in college. James Wright. Eisenhower's visit to Franco, 1959. It includes an epigraph by uh, uh, someone whose name I'm probably going to butcher. Unamuno. We die of cold and not of darkness. The American hero must triumph over the forces of darkness. He has thrown through the he has flown through the very light of heaven and come down in the slow dusk of Spain. Franco stands in a shining circle of police, his arms open in welcome. He promises all dark things will be hunted down. State police yawn in the prisons. Antonio Machado follows the moon down a road of white dust to a cave of silent children under the Pyrenees. Wine darkens in stone jars in villages. Wine sleeps in the the mouths of old men. It is a dark red color. Smiles glitter in Madrid. Eisenhower has touched hands with Franco, embracing in a glare of photographers. Clean new bombers from America muffle their engines and glide down now. Their wings shine in the searchlights of bare fields in Spain. Wow. And my last poem, uh, probably for this show, is Diane De Prima, by Diane De Prima. It's Revolutionary Letter Number 30. To those who sold the Revolution Summer of 1968. 
Remember to wear a hat if you have a hat and stick your hair inside it if it's long hair or don't. Wear shoes if it's snowing and you have shoes. Remember, remember, they buy out all the leaders. Be a leader. Tell if you want to be bought out, excuse me. But remember to tell the truth just before they buy you. Tell the truth loud and the kids will hear you, not hear your money as it falls on the liquor store counter. Day after day, not hear your dreams of nightmare, betrayal, and torture. Not hear your Mercedes. They'll hear the truth you spoke. They'll believe you and honor you after you die. Brought down by that CIA bullet you can't avoid just by taking their money. They'll believe you and do what you say, not what you do. Do you remember um, or know what year she wrote that? I mean, I'm thinking I'm about cheating and looking that... at the copyright page. Oh, good. 71, 74, 1979. Okay. I would have thought it would have... Uh, no, I guess that makes sense. It's actually... Yeah, she's remembering from a few years before. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. It wouldn't have been in the 50s. Yeah. No, but it's amazingly <laughs> relevant right this very minute. You know, honestly, I think that might be a... People should grab that book, buy that book, and give it to... Uh, friends who are alt-right people because then they'll realize to not do really foolish things. Help it's actually, help them out. It's yeah. kind of, that's kind of what that, what her book is about, yes, actually. It's, it's about how not to die from foolish revolutions. Yeah. It's an admonition. Okay. Folks, if you've just tuned in, this is KBOO Portland Community Radio. This is Poetry and Everything. And this is an unusual episode of that show in that we're just reading poem after poem after poem. Okay, so I will continue with that right now. This next one is by Christos. It's called Portrait of Assimilation. My father sits quietly in his brown naugahyde chair, watching TV with the remote control held out in his hand. He switches off the sound at the commercials while intently gazing at the picture. His hair is cut short. He wears an electronic watch, white shirt, brown tie, gray sweater, carefully polished black leather shoes. Under his feet, a prairie of green-gold wall-to-wall carpet says nothing. His chair is placed to hide the bad crack in the wall and to catch the heat from an economy quartz unit. The walls are covered with paintings by his children, photographs of his grandchildren. A yellow box of Kleenex is on the table near a carved tusk made to look like a fish, and a coral rose He grew in a turquoise-class vase from Woolworth's. The way you know it's really him is the way he's wrapped, old-style, in a red and blue blanket. He says, gets kind of cold nowadays for me. By Christos, one of the poets I first learned about in that same wave of time we were just mentioning um, decades back. This poem is by Michael Waters. It's one of my all-time favorites. I don't know the guy, but I discovered this poem. I'm wild for it. Hope you folks like it, too. It's called Old School. Seth wrestled the Camaro with one fist and popped handfuls of pills while the pistol rode my thigh. I shouted, Is it loaded? over Grandmaster Flash. Amateur thug, he slipped the piece into his boot and swaggered like a bouncer into the funeral home. Sunglassed still and jittery, he scanned the room, swept past uncles to the open coffin, knelt there, then wedged the gun between our father's thumbs, insurance for the celestial joyride, and, tattooed, pierced, and fucked up, bowed his shaven skull, and wept. Michael Waters, old school. Wow. Yeah, indeed. That's a wow for sure. Okay. This one is by uh, Nikolai Atanasov. It's um, translated, or he worked with a translator, uh, Demeter Kenarov. This is called Roots. 
If you think we'll let you stay at our house with another man and make up a bed for you just like we make up a bed for your brother and his wife, you're out of your mind. House, another, wife, out of, out of, house. If you think we'll let you make up a bed for us just like your brother and his wife make up a bed for us at their house, you're out of your mind. Think. Wife, make up, bed, wife, bed. If you think we'll let you stay at our house with your wife and make up a bed for you like we make up a bed for your brother and his husband, you're out of your mind. Let in, wife, brother, out of, wife, out of, out. It would be cool to hear this in Russian, but... I do like knowing what it says. So it was originally it was originally in Russian? Yeah, that's what I think. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Maybe Bulgarian Russian or you know what I mean? But Yeah. Yeah, definitely uh Yeah. He's a heavy hitter. Okay. Um Oh, this is another one. You know, I thought since we're doing this, I'm just going to read a bunch of poems that I'm crazy about. So this one's by Gary Copeland Lilly. It's called American Rapture at 13 Degrees. Me and my boy are at the wild card game, only time I've been in a stadium. The boss at one of the buildings I clean gave me two tickets, so we're not watching TV. We are in it, close to the field in the north end zone seats. Our guys score the winning touchdown on a shuffle pass, and coming toward us, giving the ball to my son, is the player who'd slanted inside untouched. You can see every nick and paint scrape on the helmet, and my boy is jumping and screaming. The noise of the frostbit crowd cannot drown him out. His passion fills me like I have two hearts. Gary Copeland Lilly. Okay. Um, uh, another, well, like I said, and yet another one I love. You know, there are so many more, both for Patrick and me, that we love, but, you know, the show is only 58 minutes or so, folks, so what are we going to do? Um, this one's called Monopoly. It's by Connie Wanek. Monopoly. We used to play, long before we bought real houses. A roll of the dice could send a girl to jail. The money was pink, blue, gold as well as green and we could own a whole railroad or speculate in hotels where others dreaded staying the cost was extortionary at last one person would own everything every teaspoon in the dining car every spike driven into the planks by immigrants every crooked mare but then with only the clothes on our backs we ran outside laughing I grew up playing board games with my brothers and folks. When I found that one, I thought, oh, yeah, she's got that right. Um, this is by Bob Hickok. It's called Poem Ending with a Murder-Suicide. It's interesting to me there's a minimum but no maximum wage. One without the other seems like pants without legs or love without someone to love. So what are the groups? People who want no minimum or maximum wage. People who want a minimum but no maximum wage. People who want a minimum and maximum wage. And people who want to eat. A minimum wage of 20 bucks an hour is roughly 800 a week or 40 grand a year or 1.6 million in a life. There's your maximum wage, 1.6 million a year. If you earn in a year what I earn my entire life, you deserve the right to be happy about it in a gated community where you don't have to be ashamed of the dance of your joy. I deserve the right to put heirloom tomatoes in the salad now and then, such as when my kid got her cast off and her hand looked fine like it intended to go on waving at moonlight and birds, and I never thought about it but slipped the insurance card out of my wallet and slid it over, and the car started the first time for the drive home to our little bungalow that needs a new paint job, but that'll happen this summer, right before we go to a lake for a few days, and I open a beer one night, and I think, I have a place in whatever this is. 
then listen to the stars saying nothing in peace or what passes for peace is a mystery to me, not unlike who's behind the universe or why so many people in unions voted for people who wanted to kill unions, but we did, and they died. Unions died. Now, where on earth am I supposed to send the flowers? That's Bob Hickok, poem ending with a murder-suicide. Okay, and... Oh, this poem is another... I'm, I'm, I'm making myself really happy here, folks. I hope you're enjoying these poems we've, we've chosen for you because we love them. This is by Martin Espada. It's called Who Burns for the Perfection of Paper? At 16, I worked after high school hours at a printing plant that manufactured legal pads, yellow paper stacked seven feet high and leaning as I slipped cardboard between the pages, then brushed red glue up and down the stack. No gloves. Fingertips required for the perfection of paper, smoothing the exact rectangle. Sluggish by 9 p.m., the hands would slide along suddenly sharp paper and gather slits thinner than the crevices of the skin, hidden. Then the glue would sting, hands oozing till both palms burned at the punch clock. Ten years later, in law school, I knew that every legal pad was glued with the sting of hidden cuts and that every open law book was a pair of hands upturned and burning. Martin Espada. Hmm. And this is um, one of the many wonderful poems by the late Tony Hoagland, who died not long ago, but way too soon. It's called Ode to the Republic. It's going to be so great when America is just a second fiddle, and we stand on the sidelines and watch the big boys slug it out. Old men reading the Times on benches in Central Park will smile and say, let France take care of it. Farmers in South Carolina will have bumper stickers that read, One Nation with Vegetables for All, and USA Numero Uno for AAA Tomatoes. America, you big scary baby, didn't you know when you pounded your chest like that in public it just embarrassed us? When you lied to yourself on television, we looked down at our feet. When your left hand turned into a claw, when you hammered the little country down and sang the Pledge of Allegiance, I put on my new sunglasses and stared at the church across the street. I thought I had to go down with you, hating myself in red, white, and blue, learning to say, I'm sorry, in more and more foreign languages. But now, at last, the end of our dynasty has arrived, and I feel humble and calm and curiously free. It's so good to be unimportant. It's nice to sit on the shore of the Potomac and watch time take back half of everything. It's a relief to take the dog for a walk without frightening the neighbors. My country, tis of thee I sing. There are worse things than being second burrito. Minor player, ex-big shot, former VIP, drinking decaf in the nursing home for downsized superpowers. Like a Navajo wearing a cowboy hat, may you learn to handle history with irony. May you gaze into the looking glass and see your doubleness, old blue eyes in a surprised brown face. May your women finally lay down the law, no more war on a school night. May your shame be cushioned by the oldest chemotherapy, stage after stage of acceptance. May someone learn to love you again. May you sit on the porch with the other countries in the late afternoon, and talk about chickens and rain. Tony Hoagland, what a loss. What a loss. Okay, how are we doing for time? Oh, we still have, we're at about 40 minutes in. Okay, let's see what else we've got here. Should I uh, uh, take a look it? while I'm reading? Yeah. Should I throw my one uh, D.A. Powell yeah, yeah. poem that Absolutely. I was going to Absolutely. Why don't read? you take it now? 
Go ahead. All right. Yeah. Yeah. This is by D.A. Powell. Meditating upon the meaning of the line, clams on the half shell and roller skates in the song, Good Times by Cheek. <laughs> Even the business of dying must be set aside occasionally. Glaucus winged gulls drafting the last ferry across the bay. Lights of the city growing more luminous, more inviting. Who could have guessed love's a palpable thing? A dark splotch of kelp in the shoals or a mountain lion that prowls the edge of UC's cypress woods. Desires a young student, ivory mandible slack and slavering. At the amber hour snarls its empty bowels. Touch. That sensation I'd almost lost, or how to curl into another body, hermit crab style. The grouchy old man in my mirror said, Bear terror, and who's sharing your towels? <laughs> Go away, you bitter cuss. It's still 1980 somewhere, some corner of your dark apartment where the mystery of the lyric hasn't faded and love is in the chorus waiting to be born. Mm. Wow. Wow. Tell us again the title of that poem. Ooh. I just ran away from the page. Oh, okay. Uh, it is something about uh, the song Good Times and Cheek. Ah, uh, right, right, right. But uh, it's by D.A. Powell. Uh-huh. And meditating upon the meaning of the line, clams on the half shell and yes. roller skates in the song Good Times by Cheek. Yes, yes. Yeah. Great the, one. the next the next poem was the half forgotten voice of Ima Sumac. I remember Ima Sumac. Oh my God, nineteen fifties when Ima Sumac came upon the scene. Do, do you know her actual? Well, you're ready for your. Let's not digress. <laughs> well, we already have, but yes, okay, you're right. I should shape up here. Okay, <laughs> folks, we're shaping up, sort of. Poetry, not Ima Sumac. Right. Poetry. Yeah, I remember seeing her singing and on television which was new because this was you know like i say the 50s anyway okay yes back to la poesia this is a poem by judy gran she had a collection well more than one of course but this is a collection of women common women she called this set this is um roman numeral two ella in a square apron along highway 80 she's a copper-headed waitress tired and sharp-worded she hides her bad brown tooth behind a wicked smile and flicks her ass out of habit to fend off the past that passes for affection. She keeps her mind the way men keep a knife, keen to strip the game down to her size. She has a thin spine, swallows her eggs cold, and tells lies. She slaps a wet rag at the truck drivers if they should complain. She understands the necessity for pain, turns away the smaller tips out of pride and keeps a flask under the counter. Once, she shot a lover who misused her child. Before she got out of jail, the courts had pounced and given the child away. Like some isolated lake, her flat blue eyes take care of their own stark bottoms. Her hands are nervous, curled, ready to scrape. The common woman is as common as a rattlesnake. I like all the common woman poems, but for reasons I can't even begin to guess at that one, and believe me, they're all heavy duty like that one. That one is the one for me. Um, here's another. Uh, this is the poem that I gave in National Poetry Month to my neighbors. I always um, put a poem under the door of all the apartments in my building. Um, during Poetry Month, and this year, 2019, this was the one I gave to everyone, by Will Dowd, a poem called Fifteen. When I told my father I wanted to be a poet, he slowed the company truck, pulled onto the gravel shoulder of the highway, and tuned the radio between stations. We sat there for a while. Passing cars rocked us in the cabin, well, he said, he was looking out at the black gutters of the salt marsh, the long gray sky, the sea snow spiked by cord grass driving upwards to eat the light. You are still my son. <laughs> what could you tell 
any of you listening, what could you tell your father that might make him consider and then say, well, you are still my child? All right. Um, this is one of the great classics by Muriel Rukeyser, one of the notable poets of the 20th century in the U.S. of A., called Myth, about the myth of King Oedipus. Long afterward, Oedipus, old and blinded, walked the roads. He smelled a familiar smell. It was the Sphinx. Oedipus said, I want to ask one question. Why didn't I recognize my mother? You gave the wrong answer, said the Sphinx. But that was what made everything possible, said Oedipus. No, she said. When I asked, what walks on four legs in the morning, two at noon, and three in the evening, you answered, man. You didn't say anything about woman. When you say man, said Oedipus, you include women. Everyone knows that. She said, that's what you think. That's awesome. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? In just those few lines, she does the whole thing. Okay, now I have a couple more. How much time do you think we have, Patrick? Well, we, we're at uh, 46 minutes. Okay. Well, in that case... Another about 10 minutes. Okay. Um, I don't know if we... Um, uh, I don't know if we'll have a whole 10. We may have to talk to you people. Um, this poem is by Belle Waring. It's called, It Was My First Nursing Job. And I was stupid in it. I thought a doctor would not be unkind. One wouldn't wait for a laboring woman to dilate to 10 centimeters. He'd brace one hand up his patient's vagina, clamp the other on her pregnant belly, and force the fetus through an 8-centimeter cervix. She tore, of course, bled. Stellate lacerations extend from the cervix like an asterisk. The staff nurses stormed and hissed, but the head nurse shrugged. He doesn't like to wait around. No other doctor witnessed what he did. The man was an elder in his church. He chattered and smiled broadly as he worked. He wore the biggest gloves we could stock. It was my first real job, and I was scared in it. One night, a patient of his was admitted bleeding. The charge nurse said, He won't rip her. You take this one. So I took her. She quickly delivered a dead baby boy. Not long dead. You could tell by the skin, intact, but long enough. When I wrapped him in a blanket, the doctor flipped open the cover to let the mother view the body, according to custom. The baby lay beside her. He lay stretched out and still. What a pity, the doctor said. He seized the baby's penis between his own forefinger and thumb. It was the first time I had ever seen a male not circumcised, and I was taken aback by the beauty of it. Look, said the doctor, a little boy, just what we wanted. His hand, huge on the child, held the penis as if he'd found a love charm hidden in his grandmother's linen, and then he dropped it. The mother didn't make a sound. When the doctor left, she said to me in a far, flat voice, I called and told him I was bleeding. He told me not to worry. I don't remember what I said, just that when I escorted her husband from the lobby, the doctor had already gone home. The new father followed me with a joyful strut. I thought, oh, sweet Jesus Christ. Did the doctor speak to you? No, ma'am, the father said. I said, quick as I could so I wouldn't have to think. The baby didn't make it. The man doubled over. I told him all wrong. I would do it all over again. Say, please, sir, sit down. I'm so very sorry to tell you. No, it's been 16 years. I would say, I am your witness. No, I have never told the whole truth. Forgive me. It was my first job, and I was lost in it. That's Bell Waring. She's totally astonishing. It's a more serious um, piece of attention given to the kinds of divisions 
in the short Muriel Rukeyser piece about men and women through Oedipus and the Sphinx, longer and much heavier, but dealing with some of the very same themes, ideas. Um, I haven't seen her stuff lately. I'll have to... It's hard to keep up, don't you think, Patrick? Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes, yeah. Yeah, that's bellwether. Yeah. I probably, I haven't, I hadn't heard her before, so now I need, now I have something I have to discover. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to, um, I'm going to close with um, a poem that, um, again, I found some, some years back. This piece, which was included in a collection called The Unwritten Song, edited by Willard Trask, is by someone who lived in the Arctic, a person whose name we don't have. It was cited by the poet Gregory Orr in the AWP, Associated Writing Programs, Chronicle, several years ago. I almost brought a Gregory Orr book here. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, I have one at home, and I I didn't. And actually, I could read one because it's it's the anthology I read the Lawrence Robb one out Uh of. Yeah, Gregory Orr is, is another... As everyone we've read tonight, really, another gift to us. So it was because of him that I know of this poem. And I thought over again my small adventures as with a shore wind I drifted out in my kayak and thought I was in danger. My fears, those small ones that I thought so big, for all the vital things I had to get, and to reach. And yet, there is only one great thing, the only thing, to live and see in huts and on journeys the great day that dawns and the light that fills the world. So thank you, Gregory Orr, for finding that poem and giving it to us some years back so that we could then read it now and any other time we want to. So... For our closing statement, I want to remind you, as I do all the time, um, about uh, what's required of us, the knowledge and the action. Next month's Poetry and Everything will feature our guest, Evie Shockley. And after that, just like this show, it'll be available on the net anytime, all the time. Thanks for listening, folks. And remember, support your local independent bookstores, independent reading series, and independent radio. Good night.